son is voting for Jack Cause he's got what all the rest lack Everyone wants to back Jack Jack is on the right track Cause he's got Hey guys and welcome back to the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast I'm your host Allison And uh, I'm really excited for this episode Because I decided that it would be fitting to talk about JFK and RFK and what they did for civil rights and the whole movement in the 60s. And I thought, no better guest to bring back than my friend, who was my first guest, uh, Ryan Pryor. He is a history teacher and just knows a lot of stuff. So um, I'm really excited to have him here, and I hope you enjoy the episode. If you're not already following me on Instagram, please follow at Kennedy Dynasty. K-E-N-N-E-D-Y-D-Y-N-A-S-T-Y. And thanks again, guys, for the continued support and the growth there. I'm so excited. Weekly, I can't get over how many followers have kind of come out of the woodworks and we've made this, you know, Kennedy community that's so much fun. Also, I appreciate you guys bearing with me as I took a little podcasting break. I was on vacation for the last few weeks, so I'm ready to get back to it, though. And I will with this one, so hope you enjoy. Okay, and welcome back to the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. My first real guest, Ryan Pryor. He is—you've been a fan favorite, actually. Hey, that's I, that's, I appreciate that. You know, yes. I I like to teach people things. That's what I do for a living, actually. So well, um, look at you. Yeah, you're, you're doing it. You're doing. I try my oh, best. I've gotten some reviews that are like, "Hey, really like that Ryan guy." So that's kind of cool. Well, people have said I've had a, I have a soothing voice that they. Oh. Have they? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, you know, I don't have any kids, nor do I want any kids. So I need somebody to like give like like nighttime stories to, like bedtime stories. So I does wish that I could... mean that your students fall asleep during your lectures? That's not or... what I've heard. No, what I've okay. heard is that when I uh, speak publicly, that it's a very soothing tone. Now I don't know if that means that it was boring, but I hope not. Well, do they drool on their desk or are they? I have had that happen a couple of times. I had <laughs> okay. one. I had one young man, but it wasn't. I don't think it was me. He, I don't think he had the best home life, and I think some things were going on, and he just, I don't think he slept very well, so, you know. Shit, that got dark. I, yeah, <laughs> I, that's the problem. Like, all of those, like, the real thing about education, we're going to talk about something today that's pretty serious. So, you know, when you talk about all those, like, um, tropes in movies about education where kids are, like, slacking off or throwing, you know, paper airplanes or falling asleep in class, in the real world, in like actual classrooms, those are the kids who you probably like need to help the most because oh. they're probably dealing with other stuff. I mean, it's, it's so crazy. But yeah. I mean, the media portrays these kids as being ne'er-do-wells, but most of the time it's children when they start to get emotional or sleepy or tired or whatever, it's usually something else that's bothering them. Right. You know, when they're right. acting out, it's almost certainly something else. Um, and so when you get a kid who's like that in class, it's, I don't know. It, I saw something today that was like, you know, the five stages of grief, one of them is anger, you know, one mm-hmm. of them is depression. And and so when you're looking at a child or a student and you see them acting out or you see them doing something abnormal or something that wouldn't be considered, you know, normal public behavior, uh, the first thing I try to do is to look at, say, is there something else going on? And can we dive into that before we start accusing a kid of being, you know, Prior, you turned out to be such a good teacher. Well, I mean, you you can't be a teacher in the 21st century unless you understand grief and you understand subconscious actions. Well, you can be, but you would just be crap. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And And it is kind of poignant that we started talking about this because there is a definite connection to what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Um, Because I think what we're seeing right now is a genuine amount of anger and just disappointment and and a a culmination of of those things into one sort of combined effort to say we're tired right and that is exactly what happened in 1963 and 1964 and 1965 and 66 and 7 and 8 and and all for the last 50 years and 2020 i mean yep it's very interesting so i've got some good stuff today i hope that you know. Good. I'm excited. I actually, before I get started, I guess I should say we're going to talk about uh, President Kennedy and 
a little bit of RFK too and their take and stance and what they did for civil rights in the early 60s yeah. and late so 60s for Robert. I have a cool story about Bobby and I can tell you it first or we can wait till the end and we can end with it. Now, as a history teacher and a historian myself, I always like to tell things chronologically because I feel like you can't learn history unless you learn it chronologically. Everything mm-hmm. impacts everything else. So it's like a domino effect. If you just see the end of the domino effect, you don't actually learn anything. You need to Mm -hmm. see where the dominoes fell before that. So I can start off with something as like a hook and we can work our way into it. Or I can save, I think, this really, really poignant story for the very end. Well, I am extremely type A, so let's go chronologically. Okay, we're going to (laughs) go chronologically. So... Do you have questions, or are we going to freeform conversation? No, I'm just kind of going to go with it, because I, yeah. I watched a couple documentaries and read a few articles and stuff to try to educate myself a little bit. I'm sure you know far more than me on this subject, but I figured we'd just kind of start with uh, May of 1961 and the well, Freedom Riders bus burning kind of thing. We, oh, we, okay. have to start, we have to start in uh, May of actually 1865. Okay. Yeah, you take it. Take it. So, <laughs> go for it. Um, 1865... The, the biggest thing that happened that year was, of course, the end of the Civil War and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, okay? The other thing that happened that year and then the years following was the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Now, I'm going to give you a question. And this is like a, are you smarter than a fifth grader question, Allison? So are you ready? I'm not. So what <laughs> let's do go. the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments do as far as the Constitution is concerned? I have zero idea. <laughs> okay. So the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments did this. Uh, They made all, uh, they freed all slaves. So anyone in bondage, it freed all slaves. It made all former slaves citizens of the United States. And it gave black men, now that's the other key thing here, black men the right to vote. Okay? Not black Mm -hmm. women. Okay? It would take another you know, 40 years, uh, no, sorry, 60 years for women and suffragettes to, to make that movement. And I would love to do a whole other podcast on that uh, if, if we can find a way to connect it to the Kennedys because that is an important part. Um, and that's a disclaimer there to say that I would say that if you use that as the context, like that was still not enough, but at the time it was monumental, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Between 1865 or 1865 to 1867, and 1963, there were no other civil rights bills passed by the United States Congress that directly affected uh, the uh, efficacy of black America. Mm-hmm. Okay? Not only that, and I'm sure you've seen 13th, which 13th is an amazing documentary on I Netflix. have not. Um, I have not seen well, you, it. You must watch. To. You have to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, because... The first part of that is to discuss what happened directly after the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which was that basically, um, just like human beings do, and and evil tends to prevail in situations where there's loopholes, states found a way uh, to basically surpass that, okay? Mm -hmm. You know them uh, as Jim Crow laws. Uh, They originally started off with what was called Black Codes. So after the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, a bunch of states, and by the way, this isn't just the American South. Now... We're Southerners, and we know the history of our, of our places, and, and we have to bear that burden every day mm-hmm. um, because we should, and we need to remember that. But it wasn't just the South. Like, I don't want to make sure, I want to make sure this is very clear. All states, in some form or another, found a way to surpass uh, these amendments to the Constitution. Uh, you may remember literacy tests, basically where uh, in order to vote, states said you had to be able to write your name or write a sentence or read something, okay? Uh, then there were uh, basically, um, you know, poll taxes, right? So if you were poorer, right, you couldn't pay, you had to pay to go to the, uh, you know, the polling station and cast your vote. And so these things were put in place to make sure that even though it was legal for black men to vote, they weren't really going to be able to make much of a difference. Okay? This didn't start taking effect until 1875 when Reconstruction officially ended and basically federal troops and federal money stopped pouring into these places and they were left to their own devices. And so basically between 1875 and 1965, white America, 
the predominantly white governments of the United States, specifically in the South, develop systems by which to oppress and uh, demonize black people and to keep them in a stasis of anti or uh, not anti antebellum um, mentality. Antebellum here meaning before the war, the war being right. the Civil War. And all of that is incredibly important to understand what JFK and his brother, Bobby, were going up against when they were elected, whenever he was elected in 19, 1961, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the issue, the, the biggest thing, is that when they came to power, when they, when they came into this situation, uh, they were not only fighting the forces of segregation and... and uh, dictatorial, I mean, dictatorship-style governments, uh, state and local, they were also fighting their own party, okay? If you remember, okay, the Democratic Party at the time does not resemble necessarily the Democratic Party of today, Mm -hmm. okay? The Democratic Party of that time was made up of a, a lot of different types of people, everyone from labor unionists to Southern, like, lawyers and and farmers okay so when jfk and rfk came up against this sort of issue of of the civil rights movement which had taken off in the 1950s they're at a crossroads because if they if if jfk pushes forward with what he does believe to be correct i mean he was he was an i mean he was against segregation he was against these these jim crow laws and these these tactics of fear and terror but if he does the wrong thing, he fears, hey, 1964 rolls around and all the Southern Democrats are going to vamoose and then somebody else gets elected. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, and Question. by the Yeah, go ahead. That's the only reason he even allowed Johnson as his vice president was yeah. because he was a Southern Democrat, right? So he, he so, was he was very afraid to lose those votes. And also the Southern Democrats are the ones that ran Congress at right. the time. The Southern Democrats yeah. ran Congress. Lyndon B. Johnson was a Democrat from Texas. He helped mm-hmm. him win uh, he helped him win those key states. And remember, you know, Kennedy was a Northeastern Catholic, you know, right. who spoke like he, you know, from was from Baston, right? So <laughs> it, it was already hard enough as it was to convince, you know, uh, Jethro Bodine and his, you know, ilk to go along with him. And I'm a Southerner, so I can make fun of Southern people. I was I'm just going to say, that's say like, my great uncle. like, I'm, I got it. No, like, we I'm, all got I'm it. I'm allowed to make those jokes. Um, I thought I was hiding my accent, by the way, on this podcast, and I got a review the other day that was like, love the Southern draw. Yeah, I was like, I, what draw? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? It's funny, you know, you don't hear it whenever you're talking, and then you, like, talk to somebody else, and, and I, I find that it comes out, you know, in different instances, but... Um, oh, yeah. If I'm around my family, oh, then yeah. it really comes out because I'm not thinking about oh, it. Oh, absolutely. But yeah. on here, I'm like, and then the, Some, so the I, JFK I actually, was elected. So just side note, I teach, you know, in a very highly, uh, like a minority community, um, obviously. And so I have about, I would say 60% of my kids are black and brown uh, Mm -hmm. uh, students, 30 to 40, 30% are white and then 10% are Latinx. Um, And we talk about code switching in class. And, you know, we talk about what code switching is and it's the difference between we're talking like a formal letter and, you know, something you're writing to your friend. Of course, they don't write letters, but, you know. And the right. way that I show them my version of code switching is by calling my grandmother, you know, mm-hmm. Nanny. And yeah, I love when Nanny. I call, so I put my phone on speaker and I call Nanny and I talk to Nanny and they're like, what the F was that? Because I get off the phone and they're like, you don't sound like that at all. It's like, no, but when I talk to my grandmother, I do. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. So JFK is already fighting the forces that exist. And so a series of events uh, pushes him and his administration to basically uh, like put civil rights at the forefront of their um, agenda. But it's interesting because JFK never, of course, is able to see the culmination of the work that he and Bobby do. Um, Mm -hmm. And it is also poignant and this is this is just a historical theory, right? A lot of, I mean, history is not necessarily there are facts, and then there are opinions and theories as to why things happen. But there is a interesting historical theory that you know 
the Civil Rights Act of 1964 wouldn't have been able to happen if JFK had not been murdered. And if, uh, yeah, if Lyndon B. Johnson wasn't the guy to sign it into uh, action. Oh, Because okay. he was a Southern Democrat. Right. And so it made it palatable enough. Um, Interesting. And, and that's just one theory, right? I mean, there's, you know, again, there's a billion others, right? Um which I, I thought was interesting when I read that. But anyway, so... Um, I, I'm sorry to cut you off. I have a question, too. So in the beginning of him being confronted with, obviously, civil rights issues that he couldn't ignore, he tried to ignore them, correct? Not only because of the votes, but he was also dealing heavily with the Soviet Union and yeah. international affairs He didn't try time. to ignore them. I think he paid them lip service, like a politician okay. does. And he says, yes, yeah. that's important to me, but then doesn't do much because he says, this is like on my list, but it's down here on my list. Right. And I mean, he didn't even address it in the State of the Union while the Freedom Riders were And you out. don't want to, I know we don't, we're, not, we're not trying to get too much into the politics of things, but sure. that's what every politician for the last 50 years since the signing of the, of the Civil Rights Act of 1968 has basically kicked the can down the road. Mm-hmm. It's like, this issue is too hard to deal with for me. It's the same thing with Social Security. No administration, no administrate, no no senator, congressman, state senator, governor, president wants to really tackle it because mm-hmm. the risk of you not getting elected again is far too high. So everyone just says, yes, I support reform and and the advancement of black and brown communities in my in in, in, the, in this country. And then they use the the gridlock of of governmental systems and bureaucracy to say, well, couldn't get it done. Right. Next guy can get it done. Okay? Mm-hmm. So what I will say is that, you know, history happens very slowly. Um, we tend to want it to happen faster because, but we're, we, you know, we, we, it, it tends to happen very slowly. And so what I, I do think we're seeing right now is a continuation of where America left off in 1968. Because we 100% left off in 1968. I truly believe that the actions of the 60s sort of, pushed us to a new point and then everyone got complacent and here we are again because not enough has changed in between 1968 and now 40 50 years later okay right so let's talk about what happened in 1964 leading up to um jfk's sort of like uh and it's called a report to the american people on civil rights all right Mm-hmm. That is what basically uh, kickstarted Kennedy's push for the Civil Rights Act of 1963. Two major events had brought him to this conclusion. Okay, um, one occurred in 1962 at my beloved alma mater, Ole Miss. Okay, uh, young man by the name of James Meredith uh, was admitted uh, to school. This angered many uh, white segregationists and the majority white. Uh, population of not only Oxford, but the state of Mississippi. Um, And it caused a riot the day that he came to sign up for classes. Two people were killed in this riot at Ole Miss. Um, You cannot attend the University of Mississippi and basically unless you know this story, because it's so very important to the history of the school, but also to the history of race relations in the United States. Sure. James Meredith, uh, the National Guard showed up. John F. Kennedy sent in the National Guard. Uh, to disperse the riots. Two people were killed. James Meredith ended up continuing on and signing up and graduating. Um, And that opened the door in large part for universities across the South, which began to basically, under federal mandate, uh, allow black people uh, to to enter and and to to attend classes. Okay? Um, The second incident took place on the steps of the University of Alabama in in 1963. Okay, and there is a famous picture of, uh, and the two the two young people were James Hood and Vivian Malone, um, and basically they were they were said a district judge said you are allowed to attend the University of Alabama they have no right to uh, disallow you, and the day that they went to sign up for classes Governor George Wallace and you may remember George Wallace being famous for his quote segregation now segregation tomorrow and segregation forever. Mm-hmm. Stood there at the door and was forcibly moved aside by National Guardsmen uh, to allow these two students to enter. These were nationally publicized events, okay? And of course, you had Brown v. Board of Education before that, uh, and the and the murder of Emmett Till, the the terrorist act committed against Emmett Till, um, 
in Mississippi. Uh, these events were taking the nation by storm, and you couldn't ignore it anymore. Okay, mm-hmm. the issues were just there. S- interestingly enough, and just a complete side note about George Wallace, he w- ran for president in the late 1960s. I can't remember which election it was under a segregationist platform. Okay, he became the like poster me- child of segregation, even after it was ended, and then later was like yo, that was really terrible. And he like recanted everything he ever said and apologized and spent the last years of his life trying to like admonish and undo what he did. Yeah. Now, I mean, that doesn't, you know, change who he is, but right. it does show that. Uh, I didn't know that about yeah, him. Even at that time, I mean, people were able to, I mean, and, and they, th- there's some, you know, idea that it was pol- political, but honestly, like, I don't know. It's just interesting to think about this guy who was the poster child for segregation turns around and, and recants that and says no. So people are capable of change. Whether that change was yeah. genuine, we don't know. But, you know, who knows? Yeah. So um, what does JFK do? Okay. JFK commissions his brother, Robert Kennedy, uh, to basically create a, uh, you know, a sort of a, a, a rundown. You know that scene in the office where uh, I know no scenes in the office. Oh, well, okay, all right, all right. I know. Never mind. So <laughs> everyone that listens will. So go ahead. <laughs> okay, so there's a there's a part in in the office where the new boss asks one of the other people in the office to give him a rundown of his clients, and the guy's like, "I don't know what a rundown is," and he's like trying to figure it out all day, and eventually he like does something, but it's the wrong thing. Anyway, <laughs> JFK looks at RFK and he says, "I need a rundown." Um, so. It was released in 1963, at the, at the beginning of 1963, um, and basically what RFK says is um, there has been progress overall. He notes there are, there's progress overall, but he, re- he says to the president not that race problems remain not only in the South, but throughout the country, mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, and there's more to it than that, but, you know, again... Um, and then JFK comes along uh, and meets with or, or is able to talk to a guy named Walter Ruther, okay? Um, and Walter Luther, who was a huge uh, activist, not uh, he was a white guy, activist in the labor union community, uh, he basically talks to JFK uh, at a meeting in Detroit, okay, or, or how he was framing civil rights issues to business leaders in Detroit. And he says, quote, look, you can't escape the problem, and there are two ways of resolving it, either by reason or by riots. And he goes on to say, now the Civil War was this, uh, sorry, that this is going to trigger is not going to be fought at Gettysburg. It's going to be fought in your backyard, in your plant, and where your kids are growing up. Okay? Mm -hmm. He basically says, I believe there will be another Civil War if we don't do something about this. Okay? And JFK is like, uh, okay, so we got to do something, okay? That's sort of the beginning. And then he delivers on, and it's June 11th, 1963. He delivers about a, it's a nine, it's 13 minute, um, nine to 13 minute report to the nation on civil rights, okay? Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna actually uh, take that video and insert the audio clip at the yeah. very end of the podcast so someone can listen and to it. And I think you posted this the other day, and I think the most profound statement is, this nation was founded by men of many nations and backgrounds. It was founded on the principle that all men are created equal and that the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened, okay? Mm-hmm. He also is, again, very careful to say this is not a sectional issue. Difficulties over segregation and discrimination exist in every city, in every state of the union, producing in many cities a rising tide of discontent that threatens the public safety. Remember, he's not afraid of the South, but he, but there is a large group of Democrats in the South that he still has to kind of, you know, appeal to. Right. Okay? And by the way, that's we got to always remember that it wasn't just the South where these things were going on. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of something called a sundown town. So sundown towns was one of the sneakiest forms of segregation and discrimination that existed. And they're really just very poorly known about because of all the other stuff that was going on. But sundown towns were, and there were roughly 3,000 of these public city ordinances that were produced during the civil rights era and before. Um, basically, it was that Black people were allowed to go into the town and do and, and work and, 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 and you know, buy things and, and, and trade, 
but at sundown they must go back home and they weren't allowed in the God, town so in the bad. city limits during the sundown after sundown and until sunup jeez 3000 of these the most of them ohio pennsylvania uh new york uh wow yeah, the majority of these towns i did not expect you to say those were in michigan uh wow. these states Okay. How do I not know about this? It's terrible. I'm so uneducated. No, you're not uneducated. Remember that most people only know pop history. Most people yeah. only know the big stuff, the, 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 the big pieces. They know just enough to make sure that they can orient themselves within their own time. Okay? Right. But once you dig into all of these things that happen, there's so much intricacy. And that's why people dedicate their entire lives to it, like me. Mm-hmm. Um, because you just, just, I just never get enough of this stuff. Not that I enjoy it. It's more of a... a, it's a it's a curiosity to know more and more and more about where we were. Um, I will tell you that it also, the, the phrase, those who didn't, did not learn their history are doomed to repeat it, is actually a bunch of bullshit. All right? Okay. The phrase is, should actually be. That might be the title. <laughs> that might so be the title of this the, podcast. The phrase should actually be, those who learn their history are doomed to watch everyone else repeat it around them. Okay? Because. Yeah. I can see all this stuff. This is playing out over and over and over again. History has played itself out. I mean, the pandemic that we just went through has happened time and time and time again. In fact, about every 100 years, there is a sickness that causes a mass problem. And you can literally look at it. Not just that. Human beings have been using riots and uh, and protests since the literal beginning of time. Everybody loves Les Mis. Everybody, do you hear the people sing, right? They love that shit. What they don't realize is that the whole thing about Les Mis is literally about a protest. The you students, know I've never actually put that together in my brain, and I'm 1820, obsessed with Les Mis. You know that yes, I'm obsessed with yes. Les Mis. It is about 1828 and the students' rebellion in yeah, I, France. I knew that, but I guess I never thought about, uh, yeah, uh, wow. Oh, and no, by the it way, just goes, it just goes right under our noses. The French invented mother effing democracy. Not, well, the Greeks invented democracy. The French perfected mother effing democracy. And then they still went and destroyed property and cities and the mob ruled. So I'm not saying, again, we're going to move back from politics, but I'm saying that this is historical. Everything we're seeing right. has happened before. This is nothing you're not new. Necessarily, you, you're not Wait, I'm not saying you're one not way or the other. Condoning I, nor not condoning. You're history, just saying that that's historic. History is a, you must be objective. It's you cannot view right. the past within the context of the present. It's called presentism. But what I will say is that this is not something that's frankly new, and it's a it's a it's an age old question. The problem is that the issues that are being protested today in the streets, you know, after the murder the murder of George Floyd. Okay, the murder. Let's use that word correctly here. Mm-hmm. After that. It's, it, is a, it is using age-old tactics to like, continue to advance the idea that the things haven't changed enough since 1968, okay? Right. So, all right. So, JFK releases um, this. He, he, he gives this, this speech. Um, oh, and he also says, I like this quote. It's, he says, race has no place in America, life or law. And I always like absolutely. that. Absolutely. And... This is a justification and helps to push. Now, of course, again, this was already in the works, but the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in August of mm-hmm. that year uh, had like was directly helped and aided by that report and JFK's sort of um, you know beginning of civil rights leg- legislation. Um, he wasn't too happy about that though. Like, he, I, I mean, he let it happen. Obviously, he couldn't stop it. Or was it Bobby who wasn't too happy about it? One of them was like, "Oh gosh, this is going to be bad." Like it right Bobby, here so, in front of us. And this is the interesting thing, and, and the story that I'm going to tell in just a minute here. But Bobby was the one who was a little bit more reticent about it. But JFK basically, um, after this, begins uh, a, a legislative activity in the Justice Department, as he has Bobby sort of working on the finer details of his proposal to the Democratic leadership. Um, and these include fair employment practice committees, uh, community relations services, um, and funds and programs um, to which that could fight discrimination where it occurred. Okay, um, the most vocal opponents to this civil rights bill, which would come again in 1964, wouldn't be signed until 1964. Um, these would be Southern Democrats, right? Um, people who just, again, just that they were Democrats. 
They were afraid of their electorate switching on them, things like that. But basically, JFK knew that he was going to lose some southern states because of it. Okay? Right. Um, but he felt it was important. I mean, it was really, an, I, I mean, it, he felt that it was important. The bill, of course, wasn't approved by Congress until July 2nd of the following year. And, of course, by mm-hmm. that time, Kennedy had been assassinated in Dallas. Um, but, you know, basically what Kennedy did was to try to make sure that it transformed, that he transformed um, the civil rights era, the civil rights movement of which he was the president during the, during the very beginning of, or, the, mm-hmm. or sort of the beginning of the middle. Uh, he wanted to change the issue from a legal issue to a moral issue. Because he truly believed that morality was playing like played a bigger role than yeah. than legal than legal issues, right? It was it was not that let's not debate this as law whether this should be law or not because people were trying to pull out the, thir- the all the amendments of the Constitution and be like, well, this by this way you could argue that this was the case, and 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 he said no, it can't, it should not be a legal issue. It should be a moral issue. Can you justify mm-hmm. this on a moral level? Can you justify these actions? Can you justify these policies morally? And if not, then they should not be law. But the, mm-hmm. the issue is, again, when people have an entrenched view, they're going to try to find any way they can to argue that something shouldn't change. Um, right. So, you know, that's very important. So JFK starts this thing. It's really his brother that is the continuation of it and the one who becomes sort of the symbol of the Kennedys and the civil rights movement. And so I'm going to tell you this little story that I came across. So I'm, I may have the title for your thing because according to several civil rights activists um, at the time of Bobby's murder in 1968, Bobby Kennedy was the most trusted white man in black America. Okay. He, mm-hmm. he was by far, by the time he died, now, he didn't start that way, okay? But by the time he was murdered, Bobby Kennedy had become the most trusted white man in black America, mm-hmm. okay? And here's how he did it. And this is, by the way, so poignant about how white America today has an obligation to listen. And that's the key word there is listen. We just have to listen. Everybody has to be willing to listen to one another, Okay. So in 1963, Bobby takes over his father's apartment in Manhattan, okay? To this event, he uh, invites several prominent civil rights leaders, um, most poignantly James Baldwin, who you may know has written several, who wrote several works um, about black communities, you know, and as well as um, the guy, uh, what's his name? His name is, sorry, Harry, Harry Belafonte, right? You know? You know who Harry Belafonte is? Yes, I've okay. Yes. Yeah, and you've seen Beetlejuice, you know, you know. Oh yes. You know. but, uh, Thank you yeah, for the moves. You're welcome. Yeah. You Thank guys you. can't see it's, this, but <laughs> I was, uh, I was just graced it. with that lovely dance shake, to go shake, along with Beetlejuice. Shake, Sinora, shake your body line. Yep. Okay, so Harry Get Belafonte it. and James Baldwin and several others, including just some sort of lesser-known people, um, show up at uh, Joe Kennedy's apartment, and they sit down, and Bobby's. I like idea is he's like, all right, we're putting together this civil rights bill. I want to talk to you about what we should, we could be doing or what are we, what we're doing. And this is a classic move by people, by well-intentioned people when they meet with people uh, in, in communities uh, who are being oppressed. And they say, mm-hmm. look at all the things that we're doing here. Look at all these crazy things we're doing. I mean, we're doing all these things. Me and my brother have done this. I think we're doing enough. I think we're doing enough. And we're doing as much as we can in the political landscape in which we exist. Um, and he wanted to basically persuade these civil rights leader that these civil rights leaders that they were doing enough. Like you should be happy with what has been done. He also even said, kind of prophetically, that he believed that within 40 years a black man would be president. Now he was off by wow. about 40. Five years. He was, it was 45 years between right. two, 1963 and 2008, but he wasn't wrong. Okay? Wow. But this is the very beginning of, of Bobby's transformation from a well-meaning liberal from the Northeast 
who was a lawyer and trying to do the best that he could, to the man who quelled the crowd the night that uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis. Okay? Mm-hmm. The night, that night, I mean, the, the difference between this meeting and that meeting is that. So um, a, young, a young man sort of starts to speak up over all of these prominent, you know, black leaders. And he says, excuse me, Mr. Kennedy, but I'm sorry, but I, I can't, this is, this is all bullcrap, basically. He says, this is, he says, this is ridiculous. Uh, he says, I cannot stand, like, this country does not stand for me. I will not stand for it. Uh, he says, you know, it's, it's, he's like, I, he's like, I'm compelled to violence, and I will certainly would not serve my country if called for it. And Bobby Kennedy gets really confused, and he's like, wait a minute, if your country calls you to service, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't go to service. And, and the guy goes, no, I would not. I would not. I would find a way around it. I would, I would, I would dodge that because this country has done nothing for me. And mm-hmm. basically he's saying like, Bobby's sort of like, his big overarching question is why are, why are black people being like, like, why are they being drawn to Malcolm X and, you know, uh, the nation of Islam and these uh, black power movements, the, you know, the black Panthers. Mm-hmm. And this young man basically goes, we're at the stage where nothing's being done. Our anger has nowhere to go. We like we're we're seeking anything that we think will affect actual change. And like it, it's just this very poignant moment, okay? That and again, this is very classic of not just you know, again, of everyone, every specifically people, you know, who get into these situations who don't necessarily understand what's going on. By the end of it, Bobby Kennedy is like, you know what? And he's like, he goes from being like super welcoming to the end of this conversation over three hours. He's like, I'm done. Enough. You, they could tell that he was just mad because he kind of felt deflated. He was like, I came here to understand things. I came here to help. And you're telling me that there's nothing where, you know, we have to do so many different things and it's impossible, you know? Mm-hmm. And at the very end, okay, Harry Belafonte comes up to uh, Bobby Kennedy and they had been like, they had been very close friends and they were very close friends. And he says, that boy, after all, in some sense, represented to everybody in that room, our hope, our honor, and our dignity, but above all, our hope. And Bobby goes, why didn't you say something like, like, why didn't you say something to help me? You know what I mean? Why weren't you like coming to our defense? We've done so much. And Harry Belafonte goes, and this is just key here, he said, if I had said something, it would affect my position and I would have to change chance. I would not have a chance to influence. If I had sided with you on these things, then I would have become suspect. Um, mm-hmm. And Bobby just he goes, Ugh, enough with it. Okay. I think this mimics a lot of experiences with people who, who, are genuinely well-intentioned and mean well, and then get frustrated whenever it's like, hey, like, they don't reach, like, a nice ending. Right. And the reality is there is no nice ending. There is no nice, like, oh, yeah, you're doing all you can, pal. This is a fight. Like, this is a, this is a movement. And so Bobby Kennedy, that's the first night, right? It took, but the, over the next five years, Bobby Kennedy goes from this sort of like, hey, we're doing enough. Why aren't like you happy with what we're doing to, to realizing like you can never do enough. And he never stopped trying to do enough, whether it would be mm-hmm. standing with rioters in the state of Alabama or going to the Mississippi Delta and standing and declaring that poverty still existed in this world and that, that there had something had to be done. Um, right. He started a fight for all minorities. He like, did. He completely. did. Right. Yeah. And he realized, right, that the best thing he could do was to listen, okay? To go and to hear and to not presume that he knew anything. To do everything that he could to listen to the people who were experiencing those inequalities and then to go and do something about it. And it culminates, I think, um, on April 4th, 1968, five years after um, this meeting, okay? Okay. Dr. Martin Luther King gunned down outside his room in Memphis, the Lorraine Motel. Um, Bobby was in Indiana uh, for, he was, you know, of course, running for president. And he had a rally um, 
scheduled for Indianapolis in a, uh, in a, in a part of town, a majoritively black part of town. Um, and when he got off the plane, he'd found out right before he got on the plane about the assassination. When they got there, he was like, you, that his, all of his aides, the, the, the mayor, everyone was like, you have to cancel this event. Okay. And he said, no, I'm going to go. I can't cancel this event. I'm going to be there. And he goes. Okay. Uh, and he's, and he, and he is the first person to tell this crowd of people about what has happened to MLK. Right. And he basically says, we have to feel this. Um, he said, what we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion towards one another and a feeling of justice towards those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. So he's, I'll actually insert that here, too. Yeah, so and that is, uh, yeah, and you, you absolutely should. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization. Black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, my, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division, what we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, 
but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. Five minutes. It lasted five minutes. Yeah. Okay. And John Lewis, of course, who was a, who was a member of Congress uh, and a freedom was a freedom writer. Uh, he 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 later remembered that doing it that night was the most one of the most honest and and like emotionally like poignant gestures that could have been done. And you know, there that night he was he said he he recalls I said some of he said I said to some of my friends Dr. King may be gone, but we still have Robert Kennedy. And I'm not saying, this is not to say that RFK was the most poignant civil rights leader outside of MLK. In fact, it, that could, nothing could be further from the truth, okay? Right. But the impact that he did have as a white man was probably unparalleled by any other white person at the time. Right. The impact that he had. As I said, the most trusted white man in black America. There was even, I was watching RFK for president, I'm sure you, or Bobby for president. That's what it is on Netflix. I'm sure you've seen it. And I'm actually going to also insert this audio clip because I was like, holy crap. That's like exactly what's going on right now. Um, He speaks with the Kern County Sheriff, basically, and goes back and forth about police brutality and says, like, how are you, how are you pursuing or arresting anyone for doing nothing wrong? Like you can't do this, you know? And the guy goes back and forth saying a bunch of crap. That's not even real. And then he ends up, like I said, I'll insert it. So I'll let him say it, but he ends up basically telling the guy to read the constitution and that he's not playing this correctly. Believe that there's going to be a riot started and somebody tells me that there's going to be trouble. If you don't stop them, then it's my duty to stop them. And And then you go out and arrest them. Absolutely. And charge them. Charge. What do you charge them with? Uh, violating uh, unlawful assemblage. Well, I think that that's the most interesting. Who told you that they're going to riot? I, the men right out in the field that they were talking to said, if you don't get them out of here, we're going to cut their hearts out. So, so rather than let them get cut, you remove the cause. find no police brutality here you've had no nobody say that uh, we beat anyone or anything like that this is not selma alabama this but senator is... could i finish my just my question right here i mean I'm, this is the most interesting concept i think that you t- suddenly hear or talk about the the fact that somebody makes a report about somebody's going to get out of order perhaps violate the law and you go in and arrest them they haven't done anything wrong how can you go arrest somebody if they haven't violated the law? They're ready to violate the law. In other words... Just like these labor people out could here, I they suggest, ask their attorney, I, what shall we do? Could I suggest in the interim period of time, in the luncheon period of time, that the sheriff and the district attorney read the Constitution of the United States? It's so strange how literally anyone could say that today and it would mean the same exact thing, you know? Like there's no no change over this period of time. I mean, I, I hate to say no change, but kind of not. I mean, what do you think about that? What do you okay. think? Okay, so as I said earlier at the podcast, historically speaking, and I've got to make sure I make that disclaimer because I, I because I think you're right to say that this is not the platform by which we should take political stances on things. No, um, I will never. No one knows where I stand politically, and will never. I don't do that here. Um, yeah, I would say so. we're looking at these things historically. Uh, this is a podcast about the Kennedys. This is a podcast about history. This is a podcast about a, a, an American family that that has played a role in our, um, you know, 
process, our, our democratic process. Um, and unequivocally, they played a huge role in the advancement of civil rights in the 1960s and, and, and afterwards. Unequivocally can't be unsaid. Like, and so that we're still feeling that effect today. And I'm, I'm hoping that that legacy continues. I would hope that young people, politicians, people who are working to, to mend these giant gaping wounds in our collective psyche, that they look to people like JFK and RFK and say, okay, what can we learn from them? How can we do, what can we continue to do? What can we do better? What can we do to fix? The word fix is not the right answer. What can we do to continue to work? You know, if you're listening to this, just know that like history is all around us. It's always there. The actions of the past are always coming to bear in the present. And you don't have to be a history teacher or a, his, or a, or a historian um, to want to know more about that and to help you inform your decision making. I'm not going to tell you what to do. If anything, I would hope that it serves to bring to light things that maybe you didn't know about and, and things about the Kennedys that maybe get overshadowed. Yeah. You yeah. Know? I agree. Because there's all, I mean, there, there's so many other things. I mean, there's just so much stuff and, and, and we tend to forget, you know, because it was LBJ who signed the civil rights act of 1964, you know, but it wouldn't yeah. have happened without Bobby and JFK. So there we are. Um, you know, parallels, the past is always repeating itself back and forth, back and forth. And we have to continually mold and, and re remold and re readjust ourselves to that normal. I agree. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is a good conversation. My pleasure. I'm going to insert the civil rights speech right after this. So if you want to hear it, stay tuned. It's about 13 minutes, I think is what you said. Join me again next week, guys, for another episode of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This afternoon, following a series of threats and defiant statements, the presence of Alabama National Guardsmen was required on the University of Alabama to carry out the final and unequivocal order of the United States District Court of the Northern District of Alabama. That order called for the admission of two clearly qualified young Alabama residents who happened to have been born Negro. That they were admitted peacefully on the campus is due in good measure to the conduct of the students at the University of Alabama who met uh, their responsibilities in a uh, constructive way. I hope that every American, regardless of where he lives, will stop and examine his conscience about this and other related incidents. This nation was founded by men of many nations and backgrounds. It was founded on the principle that all men are created equal and that the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. Today we are committed to a worldwide struggle to promote and protect the rights of all who wish to be free. And when Americans are sent to Vietnam or West Berlin, we do not ask for whites only. It ought to be possible, therefore, for American students of any color to attend any public institution they select without having to be backed up by troops. It ought to be possible for American consumers of any color to receive equal service in places of public accommodation, such as hotels and restaurants and theaters and retail stores, without being forced to resort to demonstrations in the street. And it ought to be possible for American citizens of any color to register and to vote in a free election without interference or fear of reprisal. It ought to be possible, in short, for every American to enjoy the privileges of being American without regard to his race or his color. In short, every American ought to have the right to be treated as he would wish to be treated, as one would wish uh, his children to be treated. But this is not the case. The Negro baby born in America today, regardless of the section of the state in which he is born, has about one half as much chance of completing a high school as a white baby born in the same place on the same day.
one-third as much chance of completing college, one-third as much chance of becoming a professional man, twice as much chance of becoming unemployed, about one-seventh as much chance of earning $10,000 a year, a life expectancy which is seven years shorter, and the prospects of earning only half as much. This is not a sectional issue. Difficulties over segregation and discrimination exist in every city, in every state of the Union, producing in many cities a rising tide of discontent that threatens the public safety. Nor is this a partisan issue. In a time of domestic crisis, men of goodwill and generosity should be able to unite regardless of party or politics. This is not even a legal or legislative issue alone. It is better to settle these matters in the courts than on the streets, and new laws are needed at every level. But law alone cannot make men see right. We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if in short he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed and stand in his place, who among us would then be content with the counsels of patience and delay? One hundred years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. They are not yet freed from the bonds of injustice. They are not yet, not yet freed from social and economic oppression. And this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. We preach freedom around the world, and we mean it. And we cherish our freedom here at home. But are we to say to the world, and much more importantly, to each other, that this is a land of the free, except for the Negroes? That we have no second-class citizens, except Negroes? that we have no class or caste system, no ghettos, no master race, except with respect to Negroes. Now the time has come for this nation to fulfill its promise. The events in Birmingham and elsewhere have so increased the cries for equality that no city or state or legislative body can prudently choose to ignore them. The fires of frustration and discord are burning in every city north and south, where legal remedies are not at hand. Redress is sought in the streets, in demonstrations, parades, and protests, which create tensions and threaten violence and threaten lives. We face, therefore, a moral crisis as a country and a people. It cannot be met by repressive police action. It cannot be left to increase demonstrations in the streets. It cannot be quieted by token moves or talk. It is a time to act in the Congress, in your state and local legislative body, and above all, in all of our daily lives. It is not enough to pin the blame on others, to say this is a problem of one section of the country or another, or deplore the facts that we face. A great change is at hand, and our task, our obligation, is to make that revolution, that change, peaceful and constructive for all. Those who do nothing are inviting shame as well as violence. Those who act boldly are recognizing right as well as reality. Next week, I shall ask the Congress of the United States to act, to make a commitment it is not fully made in this century to the proposition that race has no place in American life or law. 
The federal judiciary has upheld that proposition in a series of forthright cases. The executive branch has adopted that proposition in the conduct of its affairs, including the employment of federal personnel, the use of federal facilities, and the sale of federally financed housing. But there are other necessary measures which only the Congress can provide, and they must be provided at this session. The old code of equity law under which we live commands for every wrong a remedy. But in too many communities, in too many parts of the country, wrongs are inflicted on Negro citizens and there are no remedies at law. Unless the Congress acts, their only remedy is the street. I am therefore asking the Congress to enact legislation giving all Americans the right to be served in facilities which are open to the public, hotels, restaurants, theaters, retail stores, and similar establishments. This seems to me to be an elementary right. Its denial is an arbitrary indignity that no American in 1963 should have to endure, but many do. I recently met with scores of business leaders urging them to take voluntary action to end this discrimination. And I've been encouraged by their response. And in the last two weeks, over 75 cities have seen progress made in desegregating these kinds of facilities. But many are unwilling to act alone. And for this reason, nationwide legislation is needed if we are to move this problem from the streets to the courts. I'm also asking Congress to authorize the federal government to participate more fully in lawsuits designed to end segregation in public education. We have succeeded in persuading many districts to desegregate voluntarily. Dozens have admitted Negroes without violence. Today, a Negro is attending a state-supported institution in every one of our 50 states. But the pace is very slow. Too many Negro children entering segregated grade schools at the time of the Supreme Court's decision nine years ago will enter segregated high schools this fall, having suffered a loss which can never be restored. The lack of an adequate education denies the Negro a chance to get a decent job. The orderly implementation of the Supreme Court decision, therefore, cannot be left solely to those who may not have the economic resources to carry the legal, a legal action or who may be subject to harassment. Other features will be also requested including greater protection for the right to vote. But legislation, I repeat, cannot solve this problem alone. It must be solved in the homes of every American, in every community across our country. In this respect, I want to pay tribute to those citizens north and south who've been working in their communities to make life better for all. They are acting not out of sense of legal duty, but out of a sense of human decency. Like our soldiers and sailors in all parts of the world, they are meeting freedom's challenge on the firing line, and I salute them for their honor and their courage. My fellow Americans, this is a problem which faces us all in every city of the North as well as the South. Today, there are Negroes unemployed two or three times as many compared to whites. Inadequate education, moving into the large cities, unable to find work, young people particularly out of work, without hope, denied uh, equal rights, denied the opportunity to eat at a restaurant or a lunch counter or go to a movie theater, denied the right to a decent education, denied almost today the right to attend a state university even though qualified. It seems to me that these are matters which concern us all, not merely presidents or congressmen or governors, but every citizen of the United States. This is one country. It has become one country because all of us and all the people who came here had an equal chance to develop their talents. We cannot say to 10% of the population that you can't have that right. That your children can't have the chance to develop whatever talents they have. That the only way that they are going to get their rights is to go in the street and demonstrate. I think we owe them and we owe ourselves a better country than that. Therefore, I'm asking for your help in making it easier for us to move ahead and to provide the kind of equality of treatment which we would want ourselves, to give a chance for every child to be educated to the limit of his talent. 
As I've said before, not every child has an equal talent or an equal ability or equal motivation, but they should have the equal right to develop their talent and their ability and their motivation to make something of themselves. We have a right to expect that the Negro community will be responsible, will uphold the law, but they have a right to expect that the law will be fair, that the Constitution will be colorblind, as Justice Harlan said at the turn of the century. This is what we're talking about, and this is a matter which concerns this country and what it stands for. And in meeting it, I ask the support of all of our citizens. Thank you very much. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, keep America strong. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.